This is an ABC podcast. We're dealing with a few plagues at the moment, and one of them is misinformation. Misinformation is all around us, undermining democracy, endangering vulnerable communities, making us wonder exactly who and what can be trusted. And a lot of that misinformation and that lack of trust has to do with science, which for centuries has represented the gold standard of empirical truth. But today there's no shortage of people out there with deep vested interests in trying to make you believe that science is fatally compromised. And we're all suffering accordingly. Just take a look at the news from the USA, where the death count from COVID-19 has just passed a quarter of a million, in part because people are managing to convince other people that scientific theories of disease transmission are a load of nonsense. This is The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge. Welcome to the program. And this week, I'm talking about science and misinformation with Erin Nash, who's based in Melbourne. And she wears a few hats, one of which is the crown of philosophy. Erin completed her PhD in philosophy in 2018 at Durham University in the UK with a very interesting thesis titled On the Political Costs of Misinformation About Science. Erin, welcome to the program. Hi, David. Uh, Thanks for having me today. Now, on your Twitter timeline, you describe yourself as a part-time philosopher. So let's get to the bottom of that first of all. <laughs> what else is there? What, what, what sits alongside the philosophy? Before I became a philosopher, I was a public servant. And since finishing my PhD after a postdoc year, I've gone back to being a public servant. So that's my full-time gig. And on the side, on the weekends and in my spare time, I'm still doing a bit of academic philosophy. And I'm also hoping to somehow bring those two things together, whether that be sort of running seminars at work on philosophical issues in public policy making or what, I'm not sure yet, but I would like to bring them together in some way. Right. And and this has had a a long trajectory for you. And I want to ask, what got you into philosophy? Because you you started out as a science undergrad, and then you worked for many years in public policy, but then you took this swerve into philosophy. What was the story there? So one of the reasons why I decided to study philosophy was because most of the issues I was dealing with in my professional life were fundamentally moral and political issues. They're about who should get to use which natural resources, how pollution should be dealt with, and how we should invest in protecting or improving natural resources. So policymakers need to be able to answer the question, what ought to be done? Scientific evidence often has a a role to play in informing answers to these types of questions, but science alone can't give you an answer to these questions. Climate science, for instance, provides us with descriptions, explanations and projections about climate change, but it can't tell us what we should do about climate change, why we should do it when, how, with what trade-offs and at whose expense. To do good thinking about that, you need to consider issues like fairness, justice, equality, what's valuable, etc. And these concepts are concepts that, at least within academia, the humanities are best placed to help you think about. So I went to the London School of Economics and Political Science to do a master's, but I ended up being exposed to philosophy of science too. And I completed my PhD under three philosophers of science who use tools from philosophy to explore how evidence is best used in policymaking 
and how we can improve scientific practice. And this helped me gain a better understanding of science and its limitations. Mm. Yeah, and your PhD thesis, uh, which you submitted at Durham University in, in 2018, this thesis is on the political costs of scientific dissent. And in that thesis, you're asking what's wrong with speech acts that count as misinformation about science, which seems like a very good question to be asking. But you say that philosophers have largely neglected this question. So first of all, I, I just want to ask why. Why this neglect of what seems to be a very important question? I have some theories about why this might be so to do with who generally does philosophy and what motivates them and what philosophers consider worthy to be the subject of philosophical exploration. So for philosophers of science, there are three main reasons why I think they neglected or shied away from misinformation for a long time. The first has to do with how philosophers of science tend to be sceptical about there being objective truths or facts, and therefore whether there's even such a thing as misinformation. A weaker form of this concern um, some think that even if there is a class of assertions or statements that can rightly be understood to be facts or objective truths, we're not very good at correctly identifying which statements are facts or misinformation and which are not. People frequently incorrectly label something as a scientific fact or misinformation when these things are deeply value-laden. Uh, the second reason why philosophers of science have shied away is I think they place a lot of importance on epistemic pluralism and they emphasise both the moral obligations we have to respect different knowledge systems and ways of knowing because dissent and diversity contributes to knowledge production and scientific progress. So they worry that many things are going to become labelled as misinformation and suppressed if they don't conform to scientific and especially Western scientific ways of knowing and that this will lead to an epistemic monoculture within our society. And lastly, philosophers of science often doubt whether misinformation is causing much harm. So, for example, um, there are many philosophers of science and science and technology scholars who reject the notion that the circulation of misinformation is playing a significant causal role in any lack of policy progress with respect to um, global greenhouse gas emission reductions. The explanation for the stalling or apparent stalling of policy focuses on people's differences in values and STS scholars in particular urge us to shift the discussion about responding to climate change, for example, to discussions about values and to focus on issues of trust and mistrust amongst um, experts and non-experts and to avoid discussing the science or the factual information at all. I think these scholars' diagnoses and recommendations are probably correct and wise in many cases, but certainly not in all public controversies involving science. I do think that these scholars are right to emphasise the importance of issues of trust as well. Um, however, obviously people can manipulate our trust and so we can be presented with higher order evidence about scientists and the methods they use. 
which is also misinformation, and that can be used to exploit and further entrench distrust or to sow it and foment it. Yeah, and there's a very interesting story to be told here from the mid-20th century. I understand that misinformation about science was the catalyst for George Orwell to begin working on 1984. That's very interesting. What's the story there? Yeah, I was really interested to come across this myself. Um, So I was reading Orwell's authorised biography by a scholar, Michael Sheldon, And he said that what motivated Orwell to finally put pen to paper and start to write 1984 was his discovery that Joseph Stalin was fabricating scientific results and persecuting Soviet scientists. He attended a lecture in 1944 by the Oxford biologist John Baker in London, and it was through Baker's lecture that he became aware of the growing influence of the Soviet agronomist Trofim Lysenko. Lysenko rejected Mendelian genetic inheritance and instead believed that successive generations of crops could be improved merely by exposing them to the right environment. And he claimed that he had successfully changed a species of spring wheat into a winter wheat in just a few years by exposing the spring variety to wintry environmental conditions. So nothing about genes or inheritance of genes. It was all environment rather than, you know, what biologists of the day and biologists today accept as an interaction between our biology and environment. So Lysenko's claims were consistent with the ideology of the Soviet Communist Party And Stalin started aggressively manufacturing this artificial expert consensus around Lysenkoism. He inflicted these harsh penalties, sometimes a death penalty, on rival scientists who dissented from Lysenko's ideas. And Pravda, the official state newspaper, was used to engineer the broader public's acceptance and deference or non-questioning of this manufactured consensus. And the agricultural policies that were informed by Lysenko's ideas were implicated in famines that killed several million people in the USSR and its ally, China. I do think that 1984 is about who can threaten human freedoms by the manipulation and control of public information systems. But I argued in a book chapter that whilst 1984 has been widely interpreted as Orwell's critique of Stalinism, communism, socialism and the threat of a large centralised government, Orwell wasn't singling out state actors. I think 1984 is ultimately a cautionary tale about the oppressive potential that any concentration of power has. And I think that Big Brother and the party should be read more abstractly as well. So they could be tech giants in the Silicon Valley, for example. So it was Orwell's warning about totalitarianism in general, regardless of its source. Well, let's talk here about dissent, which you've already mentioned And I know that when you mention dissent, you have a particular understanding of what that term means in the context of your own work. So can you tell me about that? What what exactly do you mean by dissent and and how would you distinguish it perhaps from misinformation? So dissent is an act of rejecting or at least not accepting an expert consensus that has formed around a matter of fact 
and you can dissent by asserting a claim that's inconsistent with this expert consensus as well. So until recently, the literature and philosophy of science tended to focus on dissent and consensus within scientific communities because they were mostly interested in how this influenced knowledge production. But I'm more interested in how these dissenting speech acts of non-experts um, who are the intermediaries between scientists and the broader public, you know, what are the non-epistemic consequences for broader society when that happens? So although some dissenting speech acts do transmit what we call misinformation, it's important not to elide these two concepts. So misinformation can also be generated and spread by a consensus as well. So consider the example of Lysenko, where you had this manufactured consensus, or the fact that just decades ago, homosexuality was classified by psychiatrists as a mental illness and was included as such within medical diagnostic manuals. So there was this medical consensus and it was overturned by lay people, gay and lesbian rights activists challenging it. And they weren't scientific experts themselves, but they were able to criticise the empirical literature and the background assumptions on which psychiatrists had based their conclusions. So when it comes to what misinformation is then, I think it's actually extremely difficult to define, but I think, and here, this is my best go at trying to articulate what it is, I think essentially it's a type of communication that conveys a false representation of a matter of fact. And so we can convey misinformation by expressing false propositions or by misrepresenting what somebody else says or what an expert consensus says. But we can also convey misinformation by communicating truths. So think about the way it's been revealed that some drug companies conduct their clinical trials. They do report results of trials truthfully, but they report only the trials that have favourable results and they put the rest of the trial results in the bin. So I think the term misinformation needs to be limited to descriptive matters of fact and there might be moral truths or truths concerning evaluative matters, but I'm not talking about those kinds of truths. And I am drawing a line between facts and values here, which is very unfashionable for a philosopher of science to do. But I don't think, and I'm certainly not claiming, that this distinction holds very widely. I think there are a class of things that are facts that are descriptive in nature and that a person can accept the truth of regardless of their moral, personal, moral, social or political commitments or other particularities but there might not be many of these things in the world. Um, but I do think that one such fact, for example, is that the Earth's climate system has warmed since 1950. And I think another is that smoking can cause lung cancer. Right. And, of course, I guess another uh, distinction between dissent and misinformation that's worth making here is that there's a tradition of scientists and philosophers of science welcoming dissent, right? It's, it's generally held to be a good thing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that most arguments about the importance of dissent within scientific communities can be traced back to three prominent but very different philosophers of science, one being Karl Popper, another being Paul Feyerabend, and another being Helen Longino. 
And the arguments of these three philosophers in turn can be traced a little bit ironically back to one source, chapter two of John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, which he called of the freedom of thought and discussion. So Mill's argument from truth explains why philosophers of science and scientists are so protective of dissent because they think that it's through dissent that truth is revealed and scientific progress and knowledge production continues. And this is because we are fallible creatures. And so even that which we're most confident is true could be false. So it's only by expressing dissent, including propositions we're sure are mistaken, that we retain the possibility of learning new truths about the world. And as Mill pointed out, another benefit of dissent related to truth and knowledge production is that often the truths that we currently accept are only partially true. And so when two opinions are in conflict or two scientific arguments, instead of one of them being true and the other false, Mill suggested that they often share a truth between them and that the non-conforming opinion is needed to supply the remainder of the truth. And the final sort of component of his argument for truth is the way that a belief in an accepted truth that is in fact true can be stronger and more justified if the person holding it or the community holding it has to respond to challenges to it. So this is why um, many philosophers of science and scientists think that dissent is indispensable to any pursuit of the truth and why they think all types of dissent should be tolerated. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, speaking this week with Erin Nash, a part-time philosopher based in Melbourne, and she's written on the political costs of misinformation about science. Erin has a website. We'll put a link to that on our website. That's the Philosopher's Zone, and you can find us at abc.net.au slash rn or via the ABC Listen app. I want to get back onto misinformation here because you've written some really interesting stuff about the ways in which misinformation about science can erode certain liberal democratic values. And one of those is personal autonomy. Let's talk about that. How is personal autonomy threatened by misinformation? So when misinformation is circulating through our public knowledge systems, some or perhaps many people will come to hold false or inaccurate factual beliefs. And there's quite a large body of literature in moral philosophy on lying and why lying's bad or morally wrong. And so Cicela Box suggests that a key reasons why the victims of liars feel resentful is that they see they were manipulated and that the deceit made them unable to make choices for themselves, that they were unable to act as they would have wanted to act had they known all along. So I I think what she's gesturing towards here is the importance of us having the ability to govern or to determine our own lives through our own deliberations, choices and actions. They need to be meaningfully our own. So this is what philosophers call personal autonomy and it or a concept like it has had a central place in many moral and political philosophies. 
And as feminist philosophers in the late 80s and early 90s argued convincingly, I think, autonomous agency requires interpersonal connections and sometimes even relations of dependency with others. So it's not all about us being isolated, self-sufficient atoms at all, um, but we do need to be able to distinguish between legitimate and illegitimate ways of influencing each other. And given that we have this radical sort of epistemic division of labour in society and we depend on others um, epistemically, I thought this would be a good area to investigate. So I think it's important to stress that I don't think that all misinformation and all false beliefs we form compromise our autonomy. My answer to the question of which false beliefs do are those that we can make a judgment that they were formed non-voluntarily. So whether or not we form beliefs voluntarily depends on whether we possessed a fair opportunity to form accurate beliefs or to resist forming inaccurate beliefs. Right. I mean, you've, you've given a really nice account there of the way that the integrity of our personal autonomy is not an individual enterprise or not solely an individual enterprise. It relies on relationships and trust. And I think that there's a really interesting corollary to that in the way that knowledge formation itself is not an individual enterprise. You know, we, we have this sort of Cartesian epistemic model that that posits the one who knows something as a, an individual agent who forms his or her own beliefs about the world on his own or on her own, you know, according to the careful weighing of evidence and, and the evidence of one's senses. But is part of what you're saying there that knowledge itself is in fact a social enterprise that relies on relationships and trust as well? Oh, absolutely. That, that's precisely what I'm saying. And I, I think that the philosophers I mentioned before, Popper, Feyerabend and Helen Longineau, and perhaps especially Helen Longineau, recognised this and their sort of epistemologies for how knowledge is developed within scientific communities are all social epistemologies. But as I sort of mentioned before, I think philosophers have overly focused on what goes on within scientific communities. And I'm more interested in, you know, what goes on in the public domain kind of outside the laboratory and the science conference and I think that the same rules apply. <laughs> it's a social process and it needs to be regulated in a certain way to achieve certain values, both epistemic values and non-epistemic values. It's such a tricky issue to, to sort of get to the bottom of because we all know it's happening and particularly over the last decade or so, I mean, we've just found ourselves in this this stew of misinformation and, and, and you know, misinformation that's sort of circulated in bad faith for all the, all the worst sort of political reasons and social reasons. How should we respond to it? Can you sketch out a, a sort of a basic framework of the processes that we should initiate when we're evaluating speech, evaluating information and making decisions about how we ought to respond to, to misinformation. Right. So I just want to stress that the people that we need to focus on in the public knowledge system are the scientists, the journalists, the editors, the politicians who have these special responsibilities to citizens and others with respect to 
information and knowledge and evidence. So I think we need to think really hard about what the values are at play. And I don't think they're being thought through very carefully at the moment, and that does worry me. So I think you've got people who want to fall back on this traditional liberal million type response of making sure that the state doesn't interfere and they want to let it all play out, you know, with their faith that the truth will eventually rise. But even if Mill was right that the truth always wins out in the end, whenever that may be, we have to think about the costs and whether they're worth it. And when important parts of the million arena are currently being controlled by powerful corporate actors at the moment, who might be just as powerful as state actors, I don't think that the million arena type model is very attractive. But then you sort of get the complete opposite kind of approach being proposed, which is for the state to take back more control. And this is a technocratic or managerial or epistocratic approach um, that wants to grab hold of and use state-based mechanisms to push and pull various levers that influence who enters and circulates information within the public knowledge system. And a good metaphor for this approach might be the garden place of ideas, which was put forward as a metaphor uh, in a paper by Bob Gooden and Robert Sparrow. And an example of this might be legislation requiring that social media companies have to do particular things to better maintain their gardens. So they have to get a whole bunch of gardeners, i.e. moderators in, to pick out the weeds and fertilise the valuable flowers and make sure they flourish. And I don't think that's an attractive model either. So I think it's good to think through metaphors. And I, I came up with a different metaphor, which was a landscape, because I think when we think about landscapes, it helps us to appreciate that there are different parts to a landscape that have different values and that demand a radically sort of context-dependent approach to solving problems in different parts of the landscape. So you'll have different rules and norms and standards in different parts of the public knowledge system. And in developing the principles and rules and norms for different patches in the landscape, it helps us to sort of think about being careful not to extend them beyond the realm that they're appropriate for. And I think that we should try to develop more truly sort of democratic ways and forums and processes by which decisions about our public knowledge systems for these patches can be made. I'm wary of any solution that gives too much power over decisions that relate to truth and falsity and how our public knowledge system should be regulated to small groups of people who are unrepresentative of broader society. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's a shame in some ways. I mean, this is this is essentially the end of our conversation, but it could be the beginning of a whole new conversation about social media. There's so much to talk about there. And I will just mention, um, for the sake of the listeners, that uh, we're going to be talking about that on next week's program. But for now, I'll just say, Erin uh, Nash, it's been uh, so great to have you on the program. Really interesting conversation. And thanks so much for coming on. Thanks a lot, David. It's been great. Thank you. 
Erin Nash. She's working at the interface of social philosophy and the philosophy of science. You can find Erin online. We'll put a link to her website on our website. That's The Philosopher's Zone and you can download all of our past programs via the ABC Listen app or whichever podcasting app you happen to prefer. Thanks for joining me this week. I'm David Rutledge on Twitter at David P Zone. See you next time. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.